This podcast is for parents like you, navigating the world of neurodiversity with love and compassion. I'm a neurodivergent mother of three amazing neurodivergent children and a board-certified music therapist. Our mission is to create a supportive space where you feel understood, connected, and inspired. With practical tips, strategies, and resources, we'll help you and your child thrive in your unique way. Join us as we dive deep into the diverse world of neurodivergent individuals, exploring topics like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, sensory processing challenges, and more. We'll cover it all to empower, educate, and uplift both neurodivergent individuals and those who walk alongside them. Together, we'll create a world where every brain is valued and celebrated. We're excited to embark on this enlightening journey with you. We are your hosts, Samantha Foote and Lauren Ross, and this is the Every Brain is Different podcast. Welcome to the Every Brain is Different podcast. We're here with Kira Wackett. And Kira, will you please introduce yourself and tell us how you are involved in the neurodivergent community? Yeah, well, I'm super excited to be here. So starting off, just thank you for having me. I am, I guess I would start by saying I'm a person with pretty complex and severe trauma that's lived with an anxiety disorder and some trauma that's really changed the way how I show up and engage in the world. And I didn't quite understand how that changed my norm and my normal until I got older uh, and then became a licensed mental health therapist. And so now I work with people with all different needs, abilities, past stories, current stories. My specialization is in working with people with eating disorders and body image. So working with people with different body sizes, different experiences within their body, lots of trauma, lots of anxiety around that. And then I also work with people within anxiety disorders and then particularly kind of my central focus and kind of the overlapping thing I do is I work around shame. So the shame about who we are, how we show up in the world. And I think that's really how I see myself most directly connected to and I guess most broadly reaching into the neurodivergent community is just realizing everyone's story and how their story has come to be how the world has created and cultivated shame for them, how they've internalized it. And really, that's kind of my zone of work is helping people own what's theirs, release what's not, and then kind of reframe the story they're holding on to to really live their most empowered and best life. Awesome. Yeah, I know a lot of people that they feel shame that people who are neurodivergent, they feel shame because they are neurodivergent and mm-hmm. they're not the same as everybody else. And not everyone is like that, but I do know people like that. So I think this is a really important conversation. Can you tell us the ways that shame and in particular cultural shame surrounding that um, has affected the way we show up and engage in the world? Yeah. So I think, you know, I think that neurodivergence, that's a term we've known for a long time, but I think more broadly in the last few years, we've started to talk about the neurodivergent community. And there's this idea of I think a label that's created community. So I think that's changed a lot of people's perception of kind of like, okay, things have felt hard, they felt different. And now there's sort of a a change in how people are showing up. So I think a lot more people maybe are feeling less, oh my gosh, I'm I'm terrible, I'm different, everyone's looking at me. There's still the shame, but I would say it's more covert for a lot of people than it is overt shame. But we still see it more directly. And so I think for a lot of us, I mean, I've lived my whole life in the U.S., so I can only really speak to U.S. culture because that's where I practice. That's where I've lived. But I think it's pretty consistent in a lot of places. There are designs for how the system functions, your community, the country, the 
the way that flow happens, the way that we show up and how we put together the pieces of that system are really designed as much as we say we're inclusive design oriented. They're designed with bias and expectation for how things are going to function. So examples, because I think a lot of people listening to this will have been in school at some point and may have experienced difficulties, barriers, or feeling singled out or othered based on how their brain functions. We see how the school system is designed. We know that no design is perfect. We've got to kind of go with something, but the design is really made for one type of learning style, one type of student, one type of kind of growth path. And we're really trying to create means to allow everybody to get what they need, but that looks different. And for a lot of us, that was, oh, well, you go to a different classroom. You have a different teacher. And so the subtle sort of, you don't fit this, we're going we're to make sure you get what you need, but we're also going to make you realize that you don't belong here. And so that I would say that's more covert. I don't think a lot of people, some people probably did have that like kind of pointed at, laughed at experience. But for a lot of people, it's kind of this subtle reinforcement that you're different. What things look like are different for you. The expectations are different. I work with a lot of people that now with kind of changes in diagnoses, it's autism spectrum disorder, but prior to the change in the DSM, identifying as having Asperger's. And that's really, there's a lot of overlap. I'm not sure why. I don't know any research, but within the eating disorder community, there's a lot of overlap there. And a lot of just, I think, social anxiety and differences with engaging and a lot of body trauma that changes that. So I think another thing is just seeing, oh, how I connect is not received well, how I engage, how I show up in the world. And the shame part is the instant that you feel like somebody is looking at you like you don't belong or questioning your belonging. You don't have that same warm interaction in your head that you're going to have by saying something, interacting, bringing something up. It becomes kind of a distance. And that's really... I guess to back it up even one step further, shame is ultimately the threat of not belonging. It's the feeling like you aren't worthy of belonging here, whatever that here is for you, your family, your community, your school setting, your friend group. So every time something happens that falls out of that system design or that someone else looks at and they say, well, that's different or we don't know how to help you or you know, the I think about the sisterhood of the traveling pants movie, if you've ever seen that, like everybody can fit into this one pair of pants, but we're not actually talking about different bodies and different sizes. It's all this subtle and then not so subtle othering that over time accumulates for somebody saying, oh, I'm just the broken one. I shouldn't try for that job because I don't have the capacity to do that. I shouldn't try to fit in in this group. I shouldn't try to do these things. I should just exist here. And then that is where shame kind of takes over their story. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I've noticed the different ways of interacting. The people are trying so hard to like interact with someone to uh, connect with them. Mm -hmm. But just the way that neurodivergent brains and neurotypical brains happen. Like, for example, I'm thinking of, you know, when someone's telling a story and maybe a person with ADHD will be like, oh, I know a story that mm -hmm. goes with that. So I'm going to say that. And then the neurotypical person is like, why are you trying to one-up me? Right. Like, we're not trying to one-up you. We're just trying to connect with you. And be yeah, like, yes, this is how I connect. Experience. Yes. Yeah. And so then the person who is neurodivergent ends up feeling shame mm -hmm. because they're like, oh, that's not how I pictured that going. 
And now they don't like me. I shouldn't have said that. And they have all this like piling on themselves. Yeah. So what are some myths that surround shame? I mean, I think for a lot of us, there is this. So what you described in that interaction, I think it's what we see as a missed opportunity for connection. And this is really a problem for us as a whole, because I think a lot of us don't, we're not trained in assertive communication. Like the the beautiful thing we could do in that interaction is when the the person, the neurotypical person you're using in that example is feeling like, oh, you're one-upping me. You're not listening to me. It would be to say, hey, I'd love to hear your story. When you talk that way or when you interrupt me, it makes me feel like you don't care about what I'm saying. That's the invitation for the other person to say, that's not it at all. This is what's happening. And sometimes people don't have the language or skills to do that. But I think a lot of times it's we're so stuck in our head. Both people in that interaction were thinking about themselves and how they're failing or screwing up or how the other person's not listening. They're not worth being there. So what we see is just this notion of all of us just kind of existing in a silo of our own shame. We see the world through that spectrum. And I think a lot of people, I would say in the last few years, particularly, and I think everybody kind of has a at least somewhat of a familiarity with Brene Brown at this point. I think she's really made shame more of a household topic. And I say that loosely because there's still so many people who aren't talking about it, but they're at least familiar adjacent to the term now, whereas that wasn't happening for a long time. And shame is really kind of the underbelly of a lot of therapeutic orientations and tenants is addressing those stories that we have about ourselves. And I think one thing that we don't often talk about is one that we all feel it. Every single person feels shame. And you feel it whether you exist in the ideal or the non-ideal. So I think there's also this kind of othering of neurodivergent, neurotypical. Both sides feel shame in different ways. And there's a common groundwork there to talk about, oh my gosh, we might be feeling it for different reasons, different parts of ourselves, but we're all afraid we don't belong here. And we're all trying to fit into the same system that wasn't designed for any of us to thrive. It was designed for us to perform. And so I think a big thing is recognizing this happens to everyone. I think the second thing for a lot of people is because maybe they haven't gotten to point number one and recognized one, what is shame? And two, I have it. They don't realize how often their lives are being dictated by their shame. So even for example, I just had a workout class. I talked to a trainer afterwards because I know I have a lot of mental blocks around my body. And a lot of that is trauma oriented. Some of that is just I can't do things. I have this mindset I've had to work really, really hard against of I can't do it. I can't take it on. I can't handle it. And there's something about my physical body with that. I had an interaction with this trainer, asked for a little help, went to go set up a consultation, left the interaction. My husband was with me. I'm assuming if somebody was watching that, it looked like a normal interaction. But I left and I immediately was like, do you, do you think she likes me? Was I too needy? Did I Did I ask for too much? Did I want too much. And I'm like, oh my gosh, now I'm being too needy here. You don't want to talk about this. You just got like, that is how my brain functions. And that's how a lot of people's brains do. And so I think if we can get to the place of realizing, oh my gosh, it wasn't just the interaction. I am literally rewriting and ruminating on stories all day long because of how much shame I hold. And I say that being somebody that I think is really strongly shame resilient at this point, but it still shows up. And so I think for people to realize it, it is affecting your everyday, it's stopping you from wearing the clothes you want to wear, it's stopping you from saying the thing you want to say, it's stopping you from 
leaving the job that you actually hate, but you're telling yourself this is what you should do because you said you were going to be this thing when you were 10. So you have to stick with it. It's the thing that's writing your story and making you afraid to deviate from that. Because in your mind, if you don't keep performing, you're already at risk of people finding out you suck. If you show them by breaking out of the performance, then everyone's going to know. And then they're going to see exactly what you've been holding on the whole time. And then you've got nothing. Yeah, that's great. Let's go back. I really liked what you said, that the system is designed, not designed to thrive, but to perform. Mm -hmm. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on that, what you meant by that? Yeah. And so again, I think regardless of where you live, you will see this. But I think my context being, again, U.S. driven and the different communities I've existed in here, worked with here. But what we see is that, and I use school as an example, but it's not just school. It's all these other elements of how you interact when you're in a social setting, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to be. The We go to school, we go to college, we know exactly what we want to do. Again, when you're five, 10 years old and you've got to, you start college and you, again, you have to go to college and then you have to graduate in a certain number of years. We ask, I used to be a peer advisor in college. So kids are 18, somehow an adult and supposed to know what they want to do for the rest of their lives and subtly shamed if they don't know by the time they're a semester into school. So we design systems that are constantly about performing and about getting to that next step. I've got to get to this point. I've got to do these things. And as you get older, we see it even more. It's not just, you know, varsity soccer and the top college and this track in college and these grades, then it's your body size. And that starts, you know, way too, I have a three-year-old and she's already, and I am like the most body inclusive I could possibly be being aware. I'm sure I have blind spots. She still sees it at three. She still talks about it. She still feels it. And so there's that part coming in. And then there's sort of the blanket inheritance that busyness and success is our dominant form of social capital. And so again, the system being, I was an A student, a lot of my response to my trauma and how I function was perfectionism and having to be the best because my brain really goes around, if you're not the best in the room, you don't deserve to be there. I never had the thought I'm better than anyone. I had the thought they're allowed to be here because they have so much to offer. They don't have to prove it. They could have a C and still be better than me, but I need to have an A or I can't be here. I can't be in the room. And I would see things even looking back now where I would do stuff like I had something really intense happen. My mom struggled with substance use and there was a situation that happened in when I was in high school and she was going to prison and I was just upset. I didn't know how to process my feelings, my family. I'm from the Midwest. They are passive aggressiveness and like stuff it down like a beach ball. And so that wasn't working anymore. And one day I was at school and I started a food fight. I didn't have any way to process my anger. And so the way I did was I threw fruit at one of my friends, which like is not not funny, but I just laugh now because I'm realizing when my three-year-old has her tantrums, that's exactly how I felt in that moment. And my friend across the table who I threw the food at knew what I was going through. And he stood up and he threw food right back at me and he started this whole thing with me. The two of us ended up going to the office and he got an out-of-school suspension and I got the gentlest slap on the wrist. The differences between us, I was the ideal kid in school. I was the one that got the grades. I did all the things. I performed. I wore the clothes that you're supposed to wear. When I was in high school, it was like Abercrombie and Fitch and American Eagle. 
I wore the clothes. I played the part. I was captain of the teams. I did the things. He was not. He functioned differently. What he needed and how he asked for his needs to be met worked different than mine did. And we were treated differently. That's a system design problem. I should have had the out-of-school suspension, not him, or at least we should have had the same thing. And so you see that. You see people, again, as they get older, it could be their how they communicate. It could be how they function, their lifestyle design. There are people that have to work from home. That works better for how their brain functions, what their needs are, breaks for appointments for different things overstimulation. And we saw there was a grace period in the pandemic for some people because we had to. But I have a client right now with ADHD, very severe ADHD, and found that all of these things we had had to do pre-pandemic got easier when she went home because she wasn't constantly in a state of overstimulation where she was. And now we've spent the last like almost eight months fighting to get her approval with HR so she can continue to work from home as everyone's gone back in the office. That's a system design problem. She is thriving and doing better in the workplace, but the design is everyone's got to be there. And so if you're not there, you're not performing well. And I think that is ultimately what we see. And you can, we could dissect it all day. I know we don't have the time to go to every system, but I think that's, that's ultimately what it is, is it's the subtle idea. You know, you get a salary job where you got to be willing to work at least 50 or 60 hours. Not every brain can do that. Some brains can do that. Some brains thrive on that. Most don't. And we sort of look at, again, how much time you're putting into something and how busy you are. And then we say, that's your worth and value instead of saying, how do we optimize the system design so you can function and contribute to the team, whatever the team is, work, family, whatever that looks like in a way where you and the people you're interacting with can feel seen, safe and heard. Yeah, that's great. I love everything that you said. It totally makes sense. Um, I could talk to you about this all day, but like you said, you <laughs> don't have the time. So um, what are some anecdotes to shame? Like, um, what can we do to counter it? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing for a lot of us is that step one that I mentioned around kind of the myths of recognizing that shame is an omnipresent thing. All of us have it. We're all doing it. We are constantly in a state of questioning ourselves or altering our patterns. And I think a big thing, there's a book by Bell Hooks, and I I believe it was published in the 90s. It's still pretty well received about, it's called All About Love. And it's the idea of how we learn what love is. And a lot of the times how we learn what love isn't, but we confuse love with abuse, dysfunction, all these other things. And one of the things that she talks about with love is that we basically normalize dysfunction. I mean, everybody says it now. It's like, well, my family's dysfunctional too. And we've made it where it's like this humorous, ha-ha, everyone's dysfunctional. Instead of saying, that's a problem that we've normalized dysfunction and we've designed the system to have everybody feel like they're constantly in a state of dysfunction. That's not okay. And so I think for a lot of us, it's stepping back to ask, where has where's my sort of cap of normal and what my expectations, what my story is, where has that been expanded, where I'm supposed to tolerate and hide different things or perform in certain ways to be okay? And just start to get curious about that and realize, again, if it's, you know, I think about from like an age perspective, my grandma wouldn't wear shorts after she got to a certain age because old people shouldn't show her their knees. And that was like, I don't, I don't understand what that is, but it's this idea that we have to hide that. If you are, again, I think a lot about a couple of clients I work with with ADHD, 
where if you need a break, if you are too direct, like we'll spend a whole coaching session or a whole therapy session talking about an email exchange because it feels like it's just so much for them to even be able to communicate to somebody what they think or feel. And so stepping back and being like, how is that a shame-driven response? Because you feel like you have to hide a part of yourself. You feel like you have to be so concerned with how other people are going to receive you because the undercurrent of that story is that you're the problem. Instead of saying, gosh, maybe you are going to say something sometimes it's just really going to hurt someone's feelings or piss them off. We don't like that. And that's going to happen regardless of how much time you spend trying to craft the perfect statement. That's ultimately not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to show up with kindness and openness and to the best of your intention, be who you are. But that's on the other person to let you know how they feel and what they need in that moment. That's not yours. You don't have to outperform other people because this feels, quote unquote, harder for you because your brain sees things differently. So I think just starting to do that work and again, thinking about what do I value? And how can I show up in those values and what I'm doing with everybody I interact with? And then what do I have to release? What can't I control? And a big thing, again, is how you're going to be received. Whether you're neurodivergent, neurotypical, however you say it, how do you release that? How do you release that idea? And I think sort of the third lens of it is to think about, for each of us, all these different aspects of intersecting identity. And that could be a whole other episode of again, neurodivergence, but also what does that look like if you're Black or in a bigger body or all these different things and kind of the overlap of identities there. But again, just kind of stepping back and saying, who am I? Who are the different parts of me and the roles of me? And now I want you to list all the rules and expectations that you feel like you have to follow, that you've been taught. And if you can go deeper into that, all of the experiences that you've witnessed and experienced yourself that have made you believe that to be true. And once you look at that, that gives you the base point to start to do your shame work because that's where the untethering comes is to say, you were treated that way. Let's validate those things. And let's talk about a different way that we can reframe that. It does that ultimately mean that you are the problem. You were the problem kid. You weren't responsible. You didn't do your homework. You didn't care. Is that what that really meant? Or was that someone else's projection and assumption that was unfairly put on you? And what would happen if we released that? And we gave yourself some grace and we looked at it differently. And I think for a lot of us, you need that outside person. It doesn't have to be a therapist or a coach, but I think even a friend, because again, that's your story. You don't even recognize that that might be dysfunctional and that might be negative and putting you in the problem spot. But I think if you can start there, again, own it that you have shame, own it that it's there every single day, and now work it backwards to figure out just how it's showing up and the rules it's putting on you. I think that's going to be that first kick point for a lot of us to do that deeper, more meaningful work to untether ourselves from it long term. I, I'm trying to like, I'm finding this very like enlightening. And I, I think we've all like feel these things, but there was never like a feeling attached to it. And now I'm like, it's shame. Like mm-hmm. I never really looked at it that way. Like mm-hmm. some anxiety, some things like that. It's all just like my mind's blown right now. Yeah. I, I really, I think about, shame like glitter like I in Wisconsin 10 12 years ago got a card from my niece with glitter all over it and I swear after we moved out to Portland we've lived here for five years I still find glitter on the couch that I opened the card in that many years ago because it's just there we know that shame's like that and what we know is that if there's a drop of shame it will grow 
it's we're always going to have it. We can't get rid of it, but it will grow until you turn and face it head on. It's like, you know, you if you have a cavity, the only way to fix it is to like go in and actually do the work. And that's the thing is like, and then long term, you're brushing your teeth, you're showing up every day, oral hygiene to prevent it from happening the next time. But you might still get cavities. There might still be stuff that comes up. And so I think for a lot of us, it's, again, I think many people in the therapy world and in the coaching world promote quick fixes and band-aid solutions. Well, here's the five things you can do to just be more assertive. Here's the 10 things that neurodivergent people can do to thrive in the workplace. That's great. I love that. And those are band-aids. The deeper work is to really reflect on the system that you're a part of. And again, own what's yours and what you can control and learn to release what's not. Once you've released it, then you can make a decision about how you want to be a part for, of advocating for the change. But you can't do that until you've healed your own pain and released yourself from feeling like you're a product and a part of that. And then long term, you can say, so the next time I'm feeling it, ooh, okay, like this morning, this interaction, it's because I felt vulnerable because I asked for help. And because I know that when I do that, I am putting myself back in that position of being the school student of like, but you're supposed to be perfect. You're supposed to know everything. And the fact that I asked for help means I don't, and that's a risk. So that totally makes sense. I feel shame about that. Now, if she thought I was weird or thought I was needy, that's not mine. That's hers. She can make every decision about that that she wants to. She can communicate that with me. She doesn't have to work with me. But I'm not going to hold that anymore because I didn't come into that interaction mean and hurtful. And so I get to release that. And I think that's the place we get to down the road once we've done that more deep work. Love it. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience? I mean, this has been an amazing episode. Um, but yeah, is there anything else you want to share before we close? No, I mean, I think that, you know, like we said, we could talk about this so much more. Obviously, this is, I have an online program. I basically took everything that I was doing in the therapy room and built out a program for people so they could do it at their pace and with the type of support that matches for them. And so it's all video modules and handouts and all of these different pieces. And then there's group coaching. They can do individual coaching. And the idea being everybody learns and functions differently. Not everybody needs to be in the therapy room and not everybody wants to be in the therapy room. And as I've done that, I've beta tested, seen enough people go through this now. The work to just get through the base parts of this takes at least nine months. And I just meet like the healing I'm describing right now. And so I think the thing I really want to tell people, if it's me, if it's somebody else, like it doesn't matter who, find the people that really connect with you that you feel seen with. And then the people that aren't selling you Band-Aid solutions. And then trust yourself and your team that you build enough to lean in and do the work. And the only way that you can do this is if you release the expectation that you're supposed to check off a box to get to a certain place. This is a lifelong process. Who you are is something you're always going to be discovering and learning new things about, and it's going to change. And so giving yourself permission to say, I'm not a problem to be solved. I don't need to be fixed. This is not the goal. The goal is for me to find safe places and people in which I can really explore who I am, how I've been made to feel, the stories I've internalized, and then make some decisions about how I want to go forward and keep an openness to keep exploring the next time something hard or different or an opportunity presents itself so that I can keep in that iterative process of shame, resilience, and thriving. So just hold that for every listener. This is, it is not, you are not the problem to fix. This is not a checkbox. This is a system and an emotion, and you're going to be working through it the rest of your lives. And ultimately, you get to do that 
you get to do this work and explore how you get to show up to be excited about the life that you're living. I love that. Great words. Love it. Um, okay. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I would love to have you back again someday as we have much more to talk about. <laughs> I would love that. I agree. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope the discussion on neurodiversity has provided you with support, understanding, and inspiration. If you found our podcast valuable, please share it with others who may benefit from our insights and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Hit the follow button and let's keep exploring the fascinating world of neurodiversity. Click the link in our show notes to visit our website for a free download of three tips for a stronger relationship with your child.